We're going to be in John chapter 11 today. I was thinking this week about the craziest things that Jesus ever said. Or the things that seem crazy to people who heard him. And there are quite a few of them. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Throw it away. Or give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. And there are a lot of others, but I want to give you my top four. Number four on my list. My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. That only sounds crazy. It seems perverse. Now, and looking at it in retrospect, we think Jesus was talking about his sacrificial death. But to the people who heard him the first time, it just seemed gross. Even his disciples thought so. And there was a crisis among them, and some of them left him that day, not to come back. Number three on my list, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus lived approximately two millennia after Abraham. And yet, when he was about 30 years old, he was arguing with his critics, and he claimed that Abraham had seen his day, whatever that means, and rejoiced. When his hearers objected, he said this, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, that sounded crazy, but it's even worse when you remember that God revealed himself to Moses as I am. First century Jews understood his words to be a claim to divinity, and they tried to stone him to death right on the spot. Number two on my list of seemingly crazy things that Jesus said comes from the night he was betrayed. They're in the upper room. And he's been talking to the disciples, and they're confused about something he's just said. And Philip, who seems befuddled every time you meet him in the New Testament. I really love Philip. Philip never quite knew what was going on. But he's the one disciple that Jesus went to find and called him to himself. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And that, by the way, is that tops the list of craziest things any of the disciples ever said. Just do a magic trick, Lord. Make the Father, make God appear in this room. That'll be enough for us. In response, Jesus said, Philip, don't you know that anyone who's seen me has seen the Father? Wow. Hey, if you're looking for God, there's no need to look any further than right here. Okay, number one on my list. Perhaps the craziest thing Jesus ever said comes in today's text. So I want to read it. It's John chapter 11. We're going to read verses 20 through 27. Uh, let me give you a little history on John chapter 11. The beginning of the chapter, Jesus' good friends, Martha and Mary, who live in Bethany, sent him a message to say that their brother, who was close with Jesus, was, was really sick. And they wanted him to come. Come and help him. Come and heal him. They knew he had the power to do that. Jesus stayed where he was for four more days. Then he went to Bethany. And when he got there, his friend Lazarus was dead. Now, when he came, somebody sent word into the house. Jesus stayed out away from the house and said to Martha, who was the older of the two sisters, Jesus is here. So she got up quietly and she went out to talk to him. 
This is where we start in verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. And I think from the text later on, Martha will say the master is here, so Mary doesn't even know that Jesus is here. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again. In the resurrection at the last day, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Now, verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Martha was more proactive than her sister. The fact that she was the first to hear Jesus was coming and the first to act is completely consistent with the portrayal that we have of her in other places in the gospel. And you can be sure that when Martha headed out to meet Jesus, she had a plan. That, I suspect, was why she left without telling Mary. She wasn't going out to receive comfort. She was going out to make arrangements. Look at the first words that she says to Jesus. They sound a lot like a rebuke. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. By the way, Mary will say something very similar. In fact, exactly the same words, but in a different order in Greek. The way we have it now, Martha puts stress on the word my. My brother would not have died if you had been here. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Now some scholars read that and they think that Martha was working up to asking Jesus to raise her brother from the dead, which is what happens in this chapter. But I think that's highly unlikely. As the conversation goes on, it becomes clear that thought never entered Martha's head. When Jesus ordered the stone removed from the grave, she protested. She had no idea Jesus was planning to raise her brother back to life on this very day. Other scholars think that Martha was saying, even though you didn't do what I wanted, even though you didn't come right away, my belief in you is not shaken. But that doesn't seem to fit either. Martha uses a future tense verb, it's plain as day. I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Martha's thinking about the future. She was, at least this is how it seems to me, I know there are other ways you could take it, but I think she was thinking about what was going to happen next. And that was a very Martha-like thing to do. Remember that she and her sister were unmarried. Perhaps Martha had been married and was already widowed. We don't know. The two of them had been dependent on their brother's wage, and without it, they were in a bad place. In first century Israel, women didn't just go out and get jobs. There were no jobs to be had in that era, or very few. Prostitution was the main one. There's no way to pay for room and board. How are they going to take care of themselves? When it came to that kind of thing, Mary was useless. She was too wrapped up in the moment. She was too Mary-like. But somebody had to think. Someone had to make plans, and that someone was Martha. So she said to Jesus, you know, if you had been here, my brother would still be alive and still be providing for my sister and me. And I don't want to say anything, but you weren't here. 
So in a sense, we're in this predicament because of you. And still I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And so I have some things I'm hoping you're going to ask. You can't fault Martha for thinking like that. That's how she was wired. Some people can't, even grief, can't provide some people a break from the strategizing and thinking and planning that goes on continually inside them. Martha was one of those people. And we need those people. But it's hard on them. I think Martha was about to tell Jesus what she hoped he would ask God for on her behalf. But Jesus didn't give her a chance. He interrupted, this is verse 23, saying, your brother will rise again. To Martha, that sounded like a trite thing to say, a platitude, something like we hear at funerals all the time, well, he's better off now. She's trying to get down to business. Jesus is offering religious platitudes. But you know what? Jesus never does that. I mean, I've heard a lot of people talk really religiously. Jesus never does. He never did. When he says something, it's important. We might not understand it, but we better not pass it over. That's something Martha hadn't yet learned. She had plans. She wanted Jesus to adopt those plans. And frankly, she was a little impatient with him. Now, does that sound like anybody you know? Maybe like the person seated in your chair right now. Jesus, I have plans, and we're in kind of a hurry, so could you get with it? Martha didn't want religious cliches right now. She wanted to talk specifics about how she was to take care of her little sister in a world where women were vulnerable. In verse 24, Martha parries Jesus' comment with what I think is an impatient I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She wanted to get back to the business at hand. She had an idea. She was anxious to get it out. But what she took to be a platitude turns out to be the introduction to one of the most profound, and from a Jewish perspective, one of the craziest things Jesus ever said. Verse 25, I am, by the way, in Greek, that is emphatic. There's no need for it to be emphatic. But it's something like, I, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Now, if you thought the other things that I mentioned earlier seemed a little crazy, this one probably takes the cake. But we have to put ourselves in a first century Jewish mindset to grasp the scope, the ludicrousness of this claim. First century Jews were divided into two major camps. Those who believed that a resurrection would happen and those who didn't, who denied it. The two camps are well illustrated in the New Testament. We see it all the time by the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection and the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. But whether you fit into the Pharisees' camp, as most people did, Jesus himself fit into that camp. Paul the Apostle fit into that camp and all the Apostles. Or, into the Sadducees' camp, you would at least agree on what you disagreed on. Resurrection was, in first century Jewish thought, a worldwide event in which everyone who ever lived and died would be returned to life and given a body suited. Actually, their old body. They'd get their old body back. 
The Jews got this idea from the Old Testament, particularly from a passage in Daniel 12. Let me read it for you. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That seems clear enough. The dead will awake. And there are other passages that prophesy a resurrection. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 19 says to God, But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. And then he turns to us and says, You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. Earth will give birth to her dead. The psalmist says, You will not abandon me to the grave. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he'll stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. Well, there are these and other passages in the Old Testament that teach resurrection. But if that's the case, why didn't every first century Jew accept the idea that we're going to be resurrected? The answer is that the Sadducees, remember, they, don't, they deny resurrection. Believe that only the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, were authoritative. They didn't accord the Psalms and the Prophets the same status. If a doctrine wasn't found in Genesis through Deuteronomy, they ignored it and they didn't find the doctrine of the resurrection in the books of Moses. By the way, Jesus did, however, find it there in an interesting conversation with the Sadducees. Look at Matthew 24 sometime. Now, whether first century Jews believed resurrection would happen or not, Sadducees, Pharisees, they at least agreed what it was they believed in or didn't believe in, as the case might be. Resurrection was the coming alive from the dead of all the people who ever lived. Now, you got that in your head, right? Resurrection is the coming alive of everybody who ever lived. So when Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection, it sounded to her as if he were saying, the coming alive from the dead of all the people who ever lived, that's me. That's what I am. That's crazy. Or it sounds that way. For a person to say, I am the resurrection, is comparable to saying, I am the creation. Or I am the end of the world. Were anyone else to say something like that, we would assume he was deranged. But when Jesus says it, it's different. Because he's different. If anyone could be the resurrection, the coming to life of everyone who ever died, it would be him. But what did he mean by it? In what sense is he this? What sense is Jesus this? The resurrection. Now, we need a little background if we're going to answer that question. So let me start with what I think is an undeniable fact. Jesus took himself to be God's Messiah. But he didn't see himself as the Messiah of popular expectation. A military leader who would throw off the bonds of imperialism and transform Israel into the world's only superpower. That's what people wanted. That's not how Jesus saw him. Self. He saw himself as a very different kind of Messiah, one who would bring God's new creation into existence. The first creation had been damaged, spoiled by Adam's sin. Humans had been created to be God's image bearers, but the image had been 
defaced by a trillion, trillion sins. And the whole of creation suffered the consequences. But God didn't give up on his plan. When the first humanity and its prototype, Adam, what they failed to do, God would accomplish through a second generation humanity and its prototype, Messiah Jesus. Adam, the human, that's what Adam means, the human, was the glory of the first creation. Jesus, Messiah, the second human, by the way, that's what Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians, was the glory of the second. The first Adam was earthly, the second Adam was heavenly. The first creation began in a garden. The second creation began in a garden tomb. By the way, tombs are very lively places for God. He works miracles out of them. So when Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection, he was speaking with the conviction that he was the one bringing the new creation. Adam and Jesus were representative humans. You need to read Romans 5 for a fuller discussion of this. Romans 5 and then 1 Corinthians 15 started about verse 29 and read through verse 49. But you can get the idea of what it means to be humanity's representative by thinking of David when he went to fight Goliath. David faced Goliath as the representative of the people of Israel. If he won the battle, all Israel won. If he lost the battle, all Israel lost. The same way Adam and Jesus represented humanity, or in in fuller ways. Adam represented nascent humanity. The human race stood or fell with him. And it fell. Jesus represented the people of God, both Jews and Gentiles. He faced a fiercer and more proficient enemy than even Goliath. He faced death, which had never lost a match. If he won, all God's people won. If he lost, all God's people lost. When David represented Israel, he could have said, I am the victory. When Adam represented humanity, he could have said, I am the defeat. When Jesus represented the people of God, he could have and did say, I am the resurrection. The old creation had been scarred in a million ways, but none deeper or more ugly than death. If Jesus were to inaugurate God's new creation, he would first have to overturn death, and that's what he did. Jesus' resurrection, this is really important to get because most people don't get this. Jesus' resurrection is not mere proof that people continue to live in some way after they die. Almost every religion throughout history has believed that. The Jews believed that, most of them. The Gentiles believed that. Jesus' resurrection isn't just proof that we go on living, it's proof that a new creation has begun and it's already being realized in the people who belong to him. No wonder Paul could say, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. If you belong to Jesus, you're part of the resurrection, inaugurated new creation. In him, the future has invaded. 
The resurrection, the coming to life of all who ever lived, isn't waiting for the end of the world. It's already begun. It began with Jesus. Which means that the new creation has already been launched. But there is an order to it. As Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, Jesus the Messiah, the representative human, first, followed by those who belong to him, and then by everyone else. Now, understand this. Jesus is the resurrection, the coming to life of all those who died as part of God's new creation, because he is the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Through Jesus, God introduced a new and different kind of life, the kind Adam and the first humanity could have had. He introduced it into our dying world. The word life is one of the most important words in the Gospel of John. I think you'll find it 48 times. When John introduces Jesus in the opening lines of the book, by the way, When you read a book, before you read the book, you're going to read a whole book in the Bible, read the very beginning and read the very end. Then go back and read the whole thing through. Because very often, the most important themes will come right at the beginning and right at the end. When John opens the book, he says that in him was life. In the closing line, the final sentence of the book, he writes, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In the upper room, on the eve of the crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In chapter 5, we read that as the Father has life in himself, so the Son has life in himself. The life that the Father and Son have in themselves is different from the biological life that all the rest of us have. In fact, in Scripture, there are two different words for life. One of them is the word bios, bios in Greek. We get words like biography, biology from that word. Bios has to do with the the life of brain waves and and pulses and heartbeats. The other word for life is the word zoe which describes the life that God has. People name their little daughters, now Zoe, they name them life. That life is different from ours. Our life is temporary, theirs is eternal. Our life is sustained through physical means, theirs is unconditional. Our life is measured by stethoscopes and EKGs, theirs is measured by love. Our life is soul life, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. Their life is spirit life. Jesus is the resurrection because he is this life. In the passage that I just mentioned from John 5, Jesus says the Son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. He gives people his kind of life, the life of the resurrection. He gives the kind of life that plows through death unharmed and keeps right on going. You see what that means? It means that you and I can receive this resurrection life before we die. In fact, we better receive this resurrection life before we die since it's the power, the energy, the seed of the resurrection. 
Everyone who will be resurrected into the new creation receives this life in the old creation. You can no more be resurrected without this life than a plant can grow without a seed. The life Jesus gives to people is the seed of the resurrection. Imagine I had a hundred little plastic toy army men up here on my desk. And I pass a powerful magnet over them. What would happen to them? Nothing would happen to them, right? They'd go right on lying on my table. Now imagine that I coat their helmets with a thin coating of iron. Half of them, say. And then pass the same magnet over them. What will happen? Half of them will stand up and come to meet my magnet. And so it is with the resurrection. It raises those who possess this special kind of life that Jesus gives. Even death itself can't keep them from their master. They will stand up in their graves and rise to meet their Lord. So the question for us is, how do I get that life that is the seed of the resurrection? And Jesus tells us, he who believes in me will live, even though he dies. John says he's pleased to give that life, his special divine kind of life, to everyone who believes or trusts in him. So if you've never trusted him, and by that I mean if you've never entrusted your life to him, for that's what it means to trust him. It's not just something that goes on up here. I invite you to do so. But for the sake of transparency, I need to tell you what will happen if you do. If you entrust the life you now have to Jesus, I mean everything about you, yourself, and he entrusts his special divine kind of life to you, things will begin to happen. Receiving that divine resurrection alien life into you starts to change you. A hunger to know God will begin to grow inside of you. You'll feel the need to forgive people who've sinned against you. You'll begin to feel the need to ask forgiveness of those against whom you've sinned. Your desire to own more and more stuff will subside. Your need to impress people will decrease and your desire to please God will increase. You become more and more interested in what God says, what He's like. You'll be more characterized by compassion. When you were once characterized by selfishness, you'll be characterized by self-giving. When you're characterized by pleasure, you'll be characterized by joy. The turmoil that defines your inner life will be replaced by peace. And this will gradually happen for the most part. But that doesn't mean it will comfortably happen. The introduction of this life, resurrection life, into those who give themselves to Jesus will change them. If you've not received it and you do, it will change you into someone you don't know. You may not want that. You may like you the way you are. Well, if that's the case, you probably 
don't want this kind of life. You probably wouldn't want the resurrection either. But if you're not satisfied with the person you are, with the selfishness, the obsession with momentary stuff, the turmoil that makes up your life, you can do something about it. You can entrust yourself to Jesus, the resurrection. You can give yourself, your life, your relationships, all that you are to Him, and He will give Himself, His life, to you. Now, this is not just information you can take or leave. It's an offer you must accept or reject. When Jesus first said this, he looked right into Martha's eyes and asked, do you believe this? He expected an answer. And he got it. She looked right back into his eyes and said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. I don't think she understood everything by any means. But she knew this. I trust you. Today, Jesus is looking into your eyes and saying, do you believe this? And he expects an answer. What are you going to say to him? Let me close with a final thought. Today, people are in church all around the world. And many people are going to leave churches thinking the good news is the resurrection is that it gives us proof that there's life after death. I think it is that. But that's not really what the biblical writers were concerned about. The good news they had to share is bigger than that. The resurrection is not just proof that you can go on living after you die. It's proof that you can start living before you die. It's proof that God's new creation has begun and that we can be new creatures. And that's good news. Now we're going to pray. And as we close our service, we're going to sing a hymn. And I'm going to invite you to come up here where our prayer helpers are. They're always up here every week. But I'm going to invite you to come up here if you're ready to start a new life. If you're ready to receive a new life. That life that comes from God and that changes us and prepares us for the resurrection. If you've not done that, let me encourage you to do that. I plead with you to do that. Do it now. Let's pray. God, we are like Martha. We say things and we mean them, but we hardly know what we're talking about. You are bigger than we've ever dreamed and your plans are greater. But as best we can, we say, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of, the God, of God who is to come into the world. Lord, we make ourselves yours. Give yourself to us. And the good, great, name of the one we love, our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.